The scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Would we all stand for the reading of God's word? The Apostle Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. All six verses, beautiful. Perfect for for today. Uh, You might wonder why we have this special pedestal here today. And that's because it holds this precious egg. Because our weekend series was really about this egg. Oh, there goes the sermon. Uh, Anybody else have one? Uh, Actually, I think we might be able to redeem this. Can anyone fix this egg for me? <laughs> Anyone put it back together the way it was originally? Huh? Um, I've done with this, this with kids, and uh, usually there's about two of them who say, I, I will, I will. Um, but they're, they're not able to. And so I continue to ask, can anyone put this back together again? And they finally cry out, yes, but only God can. And really, that's the the message of our world. God created a a perfect world. He placed man in in a paradise. And humanity broke it through their sin. And so we live in a world today not as it was meant to be in the original creation, But in what happened to it as it was permeated with sin. But God is going to put it back together. When Christ returns, he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. Not only as it was, but even more glorious. And that's the hope that we talk about this weekend. Let's pray. Our Father... Your spirit, even this passage says, is the first fruits of this kingdom of heaven in today. We pray that your spirit will minister these truths in such a way that we will lift our eyes to the hope that you have set before us, that we would live out our salvation in this hope, never as those defeated, never as those uh, struck down. Well, we will be struck down but not destroyed. Uh, Father, we will be perplexed, 
but we will not despair because we have this ultimate hope. May your spirit minister to it to us, not just this morning, but each day of our lives. In Christ we pray, amen. So how do, how do we navigate this world that we're in? Uh, there are those, many, many today, who believe in an atheistic evolution. And there's many different ways they try to navigate the world we live in. Uh, there are those who are, try to be realist. We live as the highest order of animals, we, it's all about the survival of the fittest. And there's those who turn to nihilism, which essentially says a nothingness. There is no purpose in life. Get over it if you think there is. Uh, there's no ground of morality. We just survive and live. Make the best of it. Then there are those who are hedonists, and they say, well, if this is all there is, then I'm going to grab the greatest pleasure for the longest time that I can while I'm alive here. And then there are those who try to take advantage of it, and they become the despots who say, if there's the survival of the fittest, I will be the fittest, and I will subjugate all those who are not as fit as me and my race. And then there are those who are ungrounded optimists. And they would say, well, we each create our own purpose in life. And, and usually that purpose is we will help others. But why that purpose in light of the idea that it's the survival of the fittest? And then, uh, but still you have to face death. What do you do with death? And many turn to the Lion King theology and try to gain comfort from the fact that there's a circle of life. Uh, we die, we go into the ground, and, and the nutrients of our body create grass, and then the gazelles eat the grass, and the lions eat the gazelles. And I don't quite understand why that's a great comfort. Uh, and then, the, then, there's a, then there's the creative ones who essentially say... Um, I will make up my own purpose. I will make up my own morality. Uh, but again, there's just no basis. And then there's no future beyond this life. So then on the other hand, we have the religious. And the religious say, well, we can endure this life because essentially we have heaven before us. And, and heaven is going to be like this tremendous uh, Disney world for adults. And we're going to have all the greatest things that we would ever want in this life, we're going to have up there. And it's going to be wonderful. And yet what you see is that perspective is almost a continuation of a selfishness and a misunderstanding of what life itself is about. And then we have the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at what he says this morning because this passage really crystallizes so much about how we are to live in this world as it is today. Um, the first thing he says is that there's hope. He says, 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, he's realistic. We are, we are suffering. And we will always suffer in this world. But what allows us to get through this suffering and actually have be overcomers of all the suffering we have, set our eyes on the glory, the surpassing glory of what is to come. Now, realize the Apostle Paul is writing this to the Romans, first century Romans. What happened to the Christians in first century Rome? They were persecuted. They were crucified. They were put in the arenas for the lions to tear them apart. They were lit as torches in gardens. How did they get through this? How did they stand by Christ and stand victorious in death because they looked not at what was happening now, but they looked at the glory that was to come? Rodney Stark uh, wrote a book, this is a historian, The Rise of Christianity, How Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the dominant force in the Western world within a few centuries. The title captures this. He's telling us how in the world did Christianity become a dominant force within two centuries when it was so marginalized, so persecuted, and so obscure coming out of this uh, little colony, Palestine. And he points to four features of the early church, two of which point to this very thing of they were willing to suffer, they were willing to die because they had their eyes on a greater glory. One was the persecution we just talked about. The world marveled that Christians could stand so firm, so steadfast in light of all this persecution. That was because they looked to the glory. And the other is that when the plagues hit, Everyone was afraid that they would get the plagues and die. And so they would leave loved ones and flee. Or else they would isolate their loved ones and leave them alone to die. But it was the Christians who went and found those with these deadly diseases and ministered to them at the risk of their own lives. And many Christians died saving non-Christians. The world marveled and said, there's something divine about these people. Why? Because they looked to the glory. You know, one of the greatest testimonies we can have as Christians today is in suffering. It's in how we handle the difficult times in life and the trials trials in life. Do we collapse under them? Are we able to maintain a joy? Are we willing to step out, risk suffering? You know, think about our culture today. We are to be a light to our world. And in the past, very often, Christians were a light because of their morality. 
we stood out as people of morals. And today, I think if we are people of integrity or we are caring people, we will stand out a little bit. But our world, our culture doesn't seem to have much interest in morals. And so it's more difficult to stand out in that way. Uh, Christians stood out because they went out and they took care of the poor and the, the underprivileged. Our culture is doing that. They, they mandate that in, in public school today. And there are, there are secular organizations doing what, what the church has done in caring for the poor and the needy. They got it from us, but they're doing it. So they look in and they say, well, we, I've gone on some trips too. So I think we continue to do what God has called us to do as missional people, uh, but it doesn't have the impact it had before. The place we can really stand out is in this area. How do we handle the things of life that hit us? And today, Christians are becoming more and more marginalized. There's more and more criticism of Christians, and I believe that's going to continue. The question is, how do we respond to that? Do, do, we, do we cry about it? Do we uh, have pity for ourselves because of it? Uh, do we strike out? In anger? Are we bitter toward, towards our culture? Or do we use it as an opportunity to stand out and return love for hate and goodness for criticism, for honesty if we are misrepresented? We're misrepresented. Let's be honest about who are the people we're trying to minister to who don't know Christ. We have an opportunity, because of what's happening in our culture, we have an opportunity now to stand out as people of Christ. First century, they were obscure and they were marginalized. We are not obscure. We may be marginalized. But a testimony of Christ be the way we handle suffering. You know, Paul said elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, for momentary light affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And if you know anything about Paul, when you hear the words momentary light affliction, you might think, well, Paul, you, you, you got through it because your affliction was momentary and it was so light and... Now, read chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, a list like this of all that Paul endured. The beatings, the lashings, 30 time, 39 times, three times. He was shipwrecked three times. He was, he was beaten so badly or stoned so badly that he was left to die, and he actually, we believe, did die and, and returned. Returned immediately to life. Uh, he was in danger everywhere he went because every place there was plots for his life. And he calls it momentary light affliction. Why? Because he looked at the eternal weight of glory that we receive when we endure this. And the testimony that his death would have in giving life, bringing life in Christ to others. You know, the, the passage continues... For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. And, and we have a picture here as the, uh, the creation itself kind of on the edge of their seats, stretching their necks, straining to look and see the sons of God. Now we might just say, hey, creation, come to Westgate Church right now. You know, we really have the sons of God right here. And um, I don't think that's what creation's really waiting for. What it's waiting for is the revealing of the sons of God in glory. Do you know what you will be like, a believer in Christ will be like when Christ returns? First John tells us, when we see him, we will be like him. See, we were created in the image of God. That got pretty twisted. And we don't see ourselves too close to that image. But really, we long to be that person. We will be that person one day when we see Christ. And creation is waiting to see our transformation into that glory. Are we? But why? Why is creation waiting? There's something wrong, and that is our world is broken. The passage again continues. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation self will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We see here three aspects to the brokenness of our creation. There is the futility, the bondage, and the corruption. Futility essentially means a purposelessness. When you look just at creation itself, outside of God, it's, it's decaying. There's no purpose, and any small purposes we put to it are eventually extinguished as all goes away. The sun will one day burn out, and everything we do here, outside of a spiritual dimension, is going to be meaningless. And there's futility because although God gave us a purpose, we became separated from that purpose in life. Think, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had perfect joy in their relationship with one another. They had a perfect love relationship among themselves and a perfect mutual glorification of one another. And they lived in that and they needed nothing else. Yet, because God is so much love, He is so other about otherness that He created a universe, He created a world, He created a people who could experience the joy that He has experienced from all eternity in a love, mutually glorifying relationship with God Himself. But He wasn't interested in only us being into that. He wanted us to have that similar relationship with one another. And so our purpose really is to experience the love of God, the honoring that he he bestows upon us, return it towards God by loving him with all our hearts and our soul and our strengths and our mind glorifying him as he so deserves, but also loving our neighbors as ourselves. 
just as he did. Honoring one another, treasuring and valuing one another. That's why God created us. And so he creates Adam and Eve in that relationship, not only with God, but with each other to become one. And what happens? Their relationship with God gets broken. Their relationship with themselves is broken. And their relationships with one another is broken. You see, they're to love and to worship and to honor God. And yet what's Eve's response? The first opportunity she has instead of loving and honoring God, she tries to supplant God. If you eat of this tree... In the middle of the garden, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. And and Eve is immediately there. I want that. I want that more than God. I want to be like God. I want to be able to take his place. I want to determine for myself what is good and evil. I don't want to have to go to God to determine that. I want to be the own moral center of the universe. And what she has done is she pushed away out of her life. And ever since then... Just as she began to revolve the world around herself, we, in our sin, revolve the world around ourselves. And yet our relationship with ourselves is broken. At the end of chapter 2 in Genesis, it says Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. Now what does that mean? Well, when you're naked, you see, you see yourself Others see you exactly as you are, nothing to hide. And that's exactly the way they were with themselves. They were naked to themselves. They were naked to one another. And they were not ashamed. They were at perfect peace with themselves. They were secure with themselves. They were happy with themselves. And yet what's the first thing they do after they sin? To cover themselves. You see, we're all broken, even toward ourselves. Anyone who's taken Psychology 101 has learned about defense mechanisms. The defense mechanisms. What are we trying to defend? We're trying to to defend ourselves from our own self-accusations. So we blame others. We deny our sin. Um, We try to create our own self-righteousness that we look at instead of looking at our sin. We project our sin onto others and so on and so on and so on. These are defense mechanisms because we're not right with ourselves. We're not secure. We're not at peace. And we're broken in our relationships with, with each other. What's the first thing Eve does after she sins? Does she go over to Adam and say, Adam, Adam, please don't ever go near that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to protect you from sin and the damage of sin in your life. I want to keep you from the shame that, you, that I have now. No. She doesn't protect him. She doesn't look out for the one who's the love of her life, the one who she's one with. No, she takes the fruit and gives to him to eat. Imbibe in my sin. And see, that's one of the problems with our culture today. 
Our culture today hasn't turned to God to understand who we are, how we should live. Instead, we sin and then we take that fruit and we say, why don't you come along and sin okay? I'm going to say your sin's okay. Please say my sin's okay. We're not helping each other on the path to the people God created us to be, the image of God. So there's futility in our lives. There's bondage. We are in bondage to sin. Now, we don't, we don't like to admit that. We're, we're, not, we're slaves to nobody, especially here in America, right? Listen closely to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7. Do they resonate? He says, I don't understand myself. The good I want to do, I don't do. In the bad that I want to avoid, that's what I find doing. Who's good? Who can set me free from this body of sin and death? I believe anyone who's honest with himself or herself will understand that we've done many things we know we shouldn't do. And we don't do so many of the things we dream that we should be doing for one another. That's because we are in bondage to sin. We have idols in our lives that replace God, whether it be power, prestige, the purse, uh, people. The idols become pharaohs in our lives that enslave us. We go after those things. And it says, the brokenness of our creation is futility, it's bondage, and it's corruption. We see in the world itself the earthquakes, the hurricanes, the famines, the floods, the tornadoes. We say there's corruption. It's broken. The world is decaying. The sun is dying out. But that's true. We were created to be the image of God. And I've used this illustration a few times here, but it's, again, it's appropriate. When you think of image, think in terms of where you see your image. You're a mirror. You look in a mirror and you see you. And in the mirror, that looks, it's, looks just like you. Flipped over there, but looks like you. You see your face, your hands, your torso. What happened with sin? We remained the image of God, but the mirror became warped into like a funhouse mirror. So when you go into a funhouse mirror, who do you see when you look in there? You're, you're seeing yourself, but you're seeing now a head that is blown out of proportion and this body that has become a toothpick and legs that are longer than the, the rest of your body. It's me, but boy, that's a, that's a very twisted, warped version of me. Well, that's exactly what sin has done in our lives. It has taken the image of God, where the, we had the heart of God to love Him and to love one another, and we've turned it to become self-lovers above everything else. <clears throat> We took the mind of Christ. 
which would be to, to think the thoughts of God himself, to look at life through the perspective in the eyes of God himself, to value what God values. And we take it and send it all the other places, to the things that, trying to figure out the way that we will be most satisfied. Take the will, which is also the image of God. And instead of choosing... As the Lord Prayer says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come to earth. It's more like my kingdom, God. Let that come to earth. Our world is broken, but as we read this verse, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Notice. Creation didn't say we want to we want to get twisted like this. God said, God subjected it because He said, "I need some. You deserve something better. As my creation, you deserve something better than this world as it is. A world of sin. You deserve the perfect world. So God subjected it. He also can and will redeem it. But in this world, we we groan." Verse 23, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, everybody really knows that the world is not the way it should be, yet we long for it to be the way it should be. Um, Go and ask anybody, do you think this world is perfect or would, would you change something? People would change a lot of things. You know, I grew up in a time where they sang, all you need is love. We were all singing that because we believe that that's the way this world should be. And yet, do you look around and you see is all there is is love? There's bitterness, there's hatred, there's selfishness, self-centeredness, there's vying and fighting each other to get ahead, to get theirs. Are we saying, all we are asking is give peace a chance? Who would love to see peace throughout this world? That's what our hearts cry out. They cry out, there should be peace, and yet we look and there is no peace. It seems to be more wars and terrorism than ever. There isn't because that's the way our world has always been just in different corners and different pockets. We say, why why don't we just get along? Why can't we? And yet we have racism and ethnic cleansing. And we use people. Instead of getting along, we fight one another. We say, let justice roll down from the mountaintops. And yet, Outside of Judge Herman's court, is there any justice? That refers to Deflate Gate, by the way. There's injustice everywhere. You see, our hearts are crying out one thing. You know what they're crying out? They're crying out the world they were created for, but we don't see it. We groan. 
because we long for what should be. Uh, existentialist philosopher Martin Heidegger spoke of unheimlich or unhomelike, saying that, that we struggle in life because we're in unheimlich. We don't feel at home in this world. Eva Hoffman, a Jewish intellectual who wrote the Lost in Translation, said, Ever since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, there isn't anyone who doesn't in some way feel like an exile. We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self, an idealized sense of belonging, in tuning with others, and ourselves completely eludes us. Do you hear that? She said, but she said, our longing for, for wholeness in ourselves and authenticity and with each other, it just eludes us. C.S. Lewis spoke of the fact that when a man falls into water, he feels wet. But fish don't feel wet. The reason is man is created for the land. He's a land creature. But fish were created for the seas, for the water. So they don't feel wet. We simply ask, do you feel wet here? Do you feel this world is not as it should be? It shows that we were created for another world. And creation itself longs for that world and it will come. It says it's longing as some childbirth. There's pain, there's suffering now, but with a view to the new life that's going to come. The joy that comes with it. And the passage continues. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he does not see? Um, I actually just jumped a point, so half a point. So let me backtrack. I, I missed the verse which says, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan within ourselves awaiting the redemption. Now, what that's saying is the first fruits speak of what people who, who grew the vegetables and the fruit they were to bring the first fruits of their harvest to God to honor him and that showed two things one it showed a certainty that there's going to be a harvest and there would be more to come and secondly it showed that the quality of the fruit that is going to come in the harvest God has given us the believers in Christ the holy spirit as first fruit. And the one hand is, he's a down payment. It's like when you make a down payment on a car, it means you're going to pay the rest. And God has given us the spirit to say, I am going to fulfill my entire promise of a new heavens and a new, a, a new earth. But it also gives us a taste of the quality of what the future is going to be, what the harvest is going to be. You know what the Spirit does in the life of a believer? He says, Abba, Father. It speaks. The Holy Spirit draws us into intimacy with God as our Father. We are broken in our relationship with God, but the Spirit says that's restored. Intimacy comes. 
we were broken in our relationships with ourselves, but you know what the Spirit says in our hearts? He applies the cross of Jesus Christ to all of our sin. He takes guilt away. You know what happens when guilt is taken away? We don't need defense mechanisms. If we are completely forgiven for everything we would do at the foot of the cross, why do we need defense mechanisms to defend ourselves? We can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with God. Let him come into our life. Forgive us and administer to try transforming us into the image of God we were meant to be. And see, the brokenness was about our brokenness with one another, covering ourselves from, from each other. What the Holy Spirit does, if we are at peace with God and we are at peace with each other, excuse me, with, with ourselves, then we can be authentic with one another. Because the way you view me doesn't matter if I am totally received by God and I am secure in the work that Christ has done in forgiving me. I would like you to like me, but I don't need you to like me. So now I can be who I am, not worrying about who you think I am. The first fruits of the Spirit is actually beginning to restore the kingdom of God in the hearts and lives of believers. The hope says we live in hope. We are in hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for we don't hope for things we don't see. But if we hope for what is unseen, we will eagerly await it. So what it is saying is, okay, there's faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. And love is to be central in our lives. It is central in the life of God himself. Faith, we speak about that an awful lot because faith is what connects us to God. It is the way through which we live life itself. But hope is put in that list. Do we hope? And hope speaks of a certainty, living life now in light of a certainty of the future. Um, I'm sure you've read some good novels. And the novels can be very scary in the middle. All sorts of things are happening to the hero or the heroine. And if you're really too afraid to go further, you turn to the last chapter of the book and you read what happens and now you come back and you breathe a sigh of relief as you live through the character, but you know what's going to happen at the end and you have this security because you know what's at the end. That's what hope is. We know what's at the end. So even through the scary times, the challenging times, the suffering times in this life, we know the end. And we live under the canopy of hope itself. Now, Brandon's messages, which there are copies again, let me remind you, you can get those on the way out, speak more fully of how the kingdom of heaven breaks into the life of a believer today. And also, what that kingdom of heaven is that is going to come to earth to us, to believers, when Christ returns. And what you're going to see is it's probably different than you ever thought it was. So make sure you pick that up because that's the hope. Again, the, the future heaven and earth is not the Disneyland, Disney world for adults. It's not about more selfishness, our selfishness in this life uh, being moved up into heaven and now we get all the things we were selfish about and wanted. 
No, it's about bringing us back into that original intention of intimacy with God, peace with self, caring and loving one another. It's going to be more about giving out than getting. So be sure to pick those up. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father, thank you for the first fruits of the Spirit, of the taste of your kingdom. May his work in our lives give us confidence of the future, that we might live in light of that future. And join Paul when he said, For momentary light affliction produces an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For that which is seen is temporal, and that which is unseen is eternal. In Christ we pray, amen.